for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks and your designated driver materialising again here with unbeatable Doctor Who conversation on our free speaking, big thinking show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. We talk about it all on this show and now celebrating the series 60th anniversary season. Come and step into our TARDIS. Join the party on Type 40. Yes, happy Diamond anniversary, friends, fellow fans. You've come to the right place here to scratch that itch for all space and time. Even better news is you don't just have to listen to me. <laughs> I've got Sarah Graham and Simon Horton here too. Yeah, all hands on deck, everybody. Yeah. Good to see you. Hello. Hey, greetings all. Greetings. Here we are at last, Simon in TARDIS blue. Absolutely. I can't oh. imagine why I'm wearing TARDIS blue today, but <laughs> And at the anniversary season at last, Sarah, it's been such a long, long time coming. It has, yeah. We're finally there. We're in the final furlong, but yeah, so excited. It's both exhausting and exciting at the same time. Luckily, the the TARDIS, the desktop theme, our chosen model this time, does have a few chairs and things we can throw ourselves down on, at least somewhere to hang hang your card, your bay. Yeah, very good. We have to make extra room uh, for a man, for a gentleman. Our guest on this uh, this edition of the show, this is someone with a, a depth of knowledge on this particular facet of, of the world's longest-running, best-loved sci-fi and fantasy TV show. I think it's probably unrivaled. We could keep him going for hours and hours and hours. So we're going to see how long and how deep we manage to get into it all with our guest on this show, TARDIS expert. We're joined by Tony Farrell here. Uh, Hi, Tony. Hi, yeah. Welcome to Type 40, my friend. So here you are in the console room, home from home. Was this a bit of a boyhood dream come true there? Definitely, definitely. I've been watching Doctor Who, oh, as long as I can remember. I think the first uh, story that I can recall with any clarity is Power of the Daleks, uh, the scene where the yeah. colonists fits the Daleks' gun back in. That's stuck in my memory since all the way back to 1966. Before that, I've got vague memories of the chase. Uh, the reason I say that is I remember the Daleks again blowing up this white gleaming city and uh, many years later i think i caught a clip of it on blue peter or something like that and i realized that's what i remember from being a three three and a half year old so the old saying give me the boy till he's seven and i'll show you the man is very very true in my case doctor who got me hook line and sinker as a three-year-old and um, 60 years later, I'm still here with it now. Brilliant. When you hear stories like that, Simon, you could hear a pin drop. As soon as Tony started talking, when he mentioned Power of the Daleks, he said, what? <laughs> yeah, there, there aren't that many people out there who can remember Power of the Daleks. I, I, I wish I could. I can't. I wasn't around. So, <laughs> But millions of people, millions of people watch the thing. Not everybody takes it all in the way yeah. that those minds, Sarah, that this series appeals to do, do they? Not everybody watches TV yeah. like that. No, they don't. But, yeah, it, there is just something unique about Doctor Who and 
unique to you. Well, the, you know, the kind of fans that it does appeal to, these sci-fi fans. Yeah, we just soak it up like a sponge. And yeah. Yeah, I'm so envious, Tony. I wish I had these <laughs> memories. I'm envious of all of you. <laughs> you won't be envious of the aching back and the aching knees. <laughs> <laughs> Aching backs, aching knees. Yeah, I think you, you probably need need a ride, Tony, because all heroes need a ride. A lot of the most culturally sort of impactful figures tend to have them, don't they, in one form or another. So the Lone Ranger, he had silver, hadn't he? And Michael White <coughs> had Kit, the talking car. Uh, Captain Kirk was there on the bridge of the USS Enterprise. And Batman had his Batmobile. And they were powered by everything from dilithium crystals to plain horsepower and i don't really view the doctor and his tardis as, as any different at all <laughs> we make no apologies here on type 40 for focusing on our doctors and the actors who've played them throughout our diamond anniversary season of coverage here however it's the tardis's 60th birthday too and we'd never want to appear to take the old girl for granted Doctor in the TARDIS to 80s kids, you know, it was inseparable. And to uh, to children of the sort of Netflix generation, he was the madman with a box, wasn't he? The box, it was, they were inseparable for the entire length and breadth of, of both of the series. Now and again, Simon, she's changed her appearance almost as many times as the Doctor. You know, it's maybe the odd, the odd uh, die job or a couple of inches off here and there from the roof or the feet. But generally speaking, the, the TARDIS has cast the same shadow. Yeah, it absolutely has. I mean, purists are always going to struggle to kind of explain within Doctor Who terms why the TARDIS keeps regenerating. <laughs> the, the TARDIS does keep changing minor details endlessly. But as you say, the silhouette is always the same. It always casts the same shadow. It's always the same shape. And I've spoken at length about this before that I just think it's just, I don't know why, it's just a very, very romantic image somehow. Mm. I don't know what it is about that design. Um, I know, obviously, over the years, it's, 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 it's grown in our estimation because it's taken on all the connotations that go with it because of its association with Doctor Who. But even before, you know, with, without that, it's still, it's just a beautiful design. It's just the proportions of it. It's the design of it. It's it's the way it's, it's constructed. You know, I've talked about before how it's just the shape of the panels and the way the light falls on it and the shadows that are cast by the panels and, the you know, it's those windows. It's, it's just a, a, a perfect, beautiful design. You know, hats off to whoever came up with it to begin with. It's just magnificent. It's a, it's an icon. It's a classic. Obviously, outwardly, it still looks like an old police box. They were once common enough on British streets, we're, we're assured. Tony, do you remember police boxes on the street corners? Uh, the first trip I ever made to London, my dad, uh, my mother and my nan and I went down. I must have been about four, maybe five. So mm. we're looking at 19... 1965-1966 we travelled down overnight by car then it was an overnight journey so we camped halfway and my abiding memory is going over Chelsea Bridge and guess what was at the end of Chelsea Bridge the familiar blue box and really? just we were driving past the door opens and out steps a policeman. Brilliant. You have presumably fallen in love with Doc Two by that point anyway. So so it that you were excited to see yeah. because you yeah. as artists. Yeah, another of these childhood memories that sort of best part of sixty years that that's vivid 
as clear as a bell. <laughs> but, do you remember, but do you remember the TARDIS in speci specifically? Do you remember sort of getting getting obsessed by the TARDIS at any point? I think it, it, it all happened at the same time, Simon. Doctor Who grabbed me uh, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's claws into me to this very day. Uh, ever since I was four or five, yeah. uh, drawing pictures of the TARDIS, drawing pictures of the Daleks, mm -hmm. uh, drawing pictures of the control room, the TARDIS console room. But I remember making my very first TARDIS that I made. I made out of, do you remember those packets of tea that you used to get? Those little, they don't do them now but sort of PG tips. They used to come in a little box that was the perfect proportions <laughs> of a TARDIS. I'm not wow. kidding you. I remember, I remember covering this, this, this PG tips or whatever it was. Probably was, it probably only was PG tips in those days. And just covering it with paper and drawing on my first yeah. TARDIS. My, my experience the same. Whether it is the, uh, the outsides or the insides, of the TARDIS, the magic is definitely still there, even decades since the last police box was last seen on British streets, or last one that was in service, maybe. There are some still dotted around here and there that are kind of cafes or little vape shops or even nail bars, I understand. But mostly a police box, Sarah, is a TARDIS, isn't it? And as I say, although there aren't, there aren't police boxes in service, whenever we see Doctor Who out on the street, being filmed in a British city and you see that box, any version of that box, mm -hmm. on a street corner being being lit or with actors or crew hanging around it, there is some indefinable magic just about that alone, as if all is right with the world if Doctor Who is out being filmed somewhere at the moment. It is, and you just, you just have to stop and take it all in. It is, and it, like you say, it, it, there's just something so right about it. it. It belongs there. It has to be there. And it, yeah, if the world would be a sadder place if there were no police boxes. And hearing Tony there talking about how he saw a policeman come out of the doors once when he was a child there, when he when he visited London, that memory would have happened to you, Tony, in colour, not in black and white. But we, yeah. <laughs> but when when you tell us a story like that, it, it just immediately comes to to mind in black and white. It's it's quite extraordinary because of that box and the kind of. I suppose the romanticised vision of the 1960s that, that we've got and, and how cosy those boxes are. Because uh, inside, in the Hooniverse, we find a gleaming console room of, uh, full of controls and a high-tech view screen. It's all powered by an alien energy source that we've never really been able to nail down within the series. How those things come together, how that food for the imagination was able to be sold, not just to one generation of kids, but now three or four or five, one after the other. I think it's been a precise sort of balancing act of talents and of solid writing, just enough to not pull the curtain away too much. We don't really need to know how the TARDIS works, do we? For the magic to work on us as a viewer. Yep. But as, as fans though, Simon, we latch onto these things, don't we? And, and you always say that we don't, we don't consume Doctor Who passively, so there is this hunger to find out how did they do that? Which came first? Who cast this spell? I, I think that's how Doctor Who fans are. We, we're just not very good at just sitting and watching. We, we do want to sort of pick it all apart and we want to understand how it, how it sort of formed. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, I remember when, when I first got into Doctor Who and then uh, in particular watching An Unearthly Child uh, for the first time ever uh, on BBC Two as in the Five Faces season. And that was the point that I think I 
kind of became obsessed, if that's the right word, with the TARDIS, because you go back to that original TARDIS, don't you, Tony? And there's something, there is something very magical about about the origins of, of the police box and the design and the TARDIS itself. And an unearthly child just sort of captures that sort of magic perfectly, I think. And that's why I became obsessed by it. Certainly in that first episode, when they when they spend half of the episode in the console room, just being in that environment, talking about it. That's a magical time, isn't it, Tony? Oh, yeah, and I agree wholeheartedly with what Dan was just saying then. People think that because it's in black and white, oh, no, we're not going to watch it these days. But that black and white opening episode, where the TARDIS is lit, yeah, uh, the, the flashing lights, not just on the console itself, but the fact that you've got pulsing lights on the computer banks behind the, the scanner screen, the roundels light up when the ship's in flight. What people tend to forget these days, I think it's a case of familiarity, breeding, contempt. We're 60 years away from it, first airing, but nobody in 1963 had ever seen a set like that. Genuinely, genuinely is unique, and I'm not misusing that word. There was nothing like it before, and no matter what variations have come since, I, I hesitate to use the word icon, but it is. It, it, oh, yeah, I, I would I agree with that. It, it isn't a cultural icon. It is very, very close to being. It's well, so identifiable. Yeah, I, I don't know what. And the other thing, Tony, that, we, that we've got to remember that I think it's very, very easy to forget. You talk about familiarity, you know, contempt isn't the right word, but but we've become complacent. Complacency, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've become complacent. Yeah, and the thing is, yeah. you know, we've got to, to try and cast ourselves back, which none of us can do, to 1963, when an unearthly child first screened and nobody had had a clue that police box standing in the junkyard, they were going to go inside and suddenly walk into that room. That, 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 as I say, we take it for granted now, mm-hmm. but it was, that must have been mind-blowing at the time. You've got your memories of the re-repeat as your first memory of yeah. it, if I'm being honest. That would be the first time that I would have seen it transmitted mm-hmm. on live television because I wasn't old enough to remember the first episode. There is just something so magical about that set. I do. I, I get. I'd go one further, Tony and Simon, as well. It, so, I mean, it is a character in yeah. its own yeah. right. I mean, yeah. when you go back to an unearthly child, and you were saying like the half the episode is just in that room, but it's never done. You know, there's always something going off, whether it's the lighting or the movement. There's something for you to catch your eye. It's as um, if Sarah, that prolonged period of time in there, and the, all that dialogue was there just to sell it. If, if to yeah. sell us over an extended period period of time on the premise, on that premise that you could step through that magic door and be somewhere else, and they didn't need to do it again. But if they if they cast the spell and set it that deep in in the children's imaginations, they think right, I'm on board for this. I'll yeah. go wherever, and that yeah. probably is a, a large proportion of it of, of what sort of powered the show from that moment onwards because they never every time a new supporting character came in they didn't go and sort of retrace that and do it all over again did they you know you get a couple of sentences or something like that mm-hmm. but because the the thought was always for the audience well the audience they already know this you know yeah, the reality yeah. of it is that you probably would have that conversation over and over again but not for the purposes of sort of, of populist tv you do kind of take it for granted and and know who is guilty of this because it's kind of become a joke and yes it is an affectionate joke I do worry that it does take away from that power um, 
and obviously when I I saw the TARDIS properly in Rose and Rose's uh, reaction to that, when you go back and you watch an earthly child, I wish I'd have been able to have seen it before. You you do have to kind of take a step back and when you watch it and you realise, wow, you know, this is this is really powerful. You know, this is a momentous moment, and we've kind of over the years, it's gone, oh, 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 it's bigger on the inside, or it's it's smaller. Yeah. Oh, it's bigger on the inside, it's smaller on the outside, and you can't, yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, but this, this was a big... Um, and the amount of people you see, famous people, Simon, take that moment, yeah. if ever there's a, a police box prop, if they're, if, say if they're visiting the Doctor Who set, or there's just a TARDIS somewhere at some real world, lo- world location, even if there's the tiniest part of you that was a Doctor Who fan growing up, never mind still on that, you don't have to be a lifelong Doctor Who fan to do this, because I know several people who aren't, who if you go through their photo albums, or they're, they're real on their phone, and they've happened to be anywhere where, where there's been some sort of Doctor Who installation, yeah. they've taken that moment to say to their, their partner, or their child, or their friend, or whoever's with them, to say, just take a picture of me doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because of that cultural resonance. Well, and, and it's the same, you know, you look at the, the there's, that, there's still that police box prop outside Earl's Court. There's still one up at Scarborough. There's still a police box up at Scarborough. And again, I've seen so many people who are not necessarily Dog 2 fans just putting up on Facebook a photo of them outside one of those two boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, there's lots in Glasgow. And people take photos again outside the police box in Glasgow. You don't have to be a Dog 2 fan. It just is, it is totally, totally fair in this context to use the word, the overused word iconic, because it is iconic. And that's why everybody wants their photo taken outside it, and it's immediately identifiable. You don't have to be a Doctor Who fan to know what that shape is. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why it's one of the reasons why it's endured and why it's just so perfect that somebody came up with the idea. It's beautiful. And, and you don't need to be scientifically minded either to, uh, to invest in the idea simply, I suppose, Sarah, of a magic door. You, know, you can look at it just like that if you like. Yeah, well, yeah, it is the simplest, yeah. you know, thing. And yeah, and you know, the connotations, you know, it's very much like, you know, the wardrobe in, you know, Narnia. Yeah. yeah. I suppose, um, you know, it really, you know, derives from that. But yeah, any anything, it's what, what's behind this door. Um, and the fact that it could be anywhere, anything. It's, uh, but yeah, but the best thing about the TARDIS is how effectively it was done. Yeah, there's lots more of that and precisely where Tony comes into it and, and out of it and back into it again. That's all coming up after I remind you if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own. Each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is uh, just a tap or two away on the device of your choice, but only if you know where to look. There's masses of reviews, previews, interviews, geekouts, and deep dives with all our regular panellists and some pretty awesome guests. In fact, there's something for every fan over at type40.podbean.com. More boasting about all of that later, and we'll be making contact with the matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other treats for the years on offer across all the other shows over there. Uh, new adventures await inside the TARDIS in just a few days' time, in fact, as the 60th anniversary event series is about to begin. Join us now on a trip back in time, making various stops in celebration of the best ship in the universe. Yes, here we are in 2023 at the 60th anniversary 
of Doctor Who itself and when the publicity campaign really started to kick in for this event miniseries. Well, we were shown very, very little, really. And we still know not a great deal more as it's down to the last days and, until transmission. And the posters, initially they featured the 14th Doctor, played by David Tennant there with Catherine Tate. But the, the TARDIS, it was background all of these original early posters sort of lit by this kind of nebula as if there was some power pushing them all towards us and the TARDIS is effectively the third regular cast member and the series any promotional picture you will see for Doctor Who regardless of how the cast generally changes I think everybody knows it's Doctor Who even if you're just passing it the, the top floor of a bus, you're passing a poster along the road or something like that. You think, oh, this is Doctor Who. Tarnas is probably the very first thing you see. It's that, it's that emblemic, it's that iconic. Obviously, the BBC didn't design the police box, but having the idea to marry the police box shell to the concept of the time-space capsule that had been arrived at by a process of that focus group who'd worked on Doctor Who for all those months in 1963, that is a kind of magic in itself, put together by a group of people who were just all on the payroll of the British Broadcasting Corporation. And the BBC was then, just as it is now, funded by the British population through the TV licence fee. And whilst I've, I've got no, di no doubt, Simon, that back in the 50s and the, and the, and the early 60s, it was definitely a more experimental and free time. I've got no doubt either that back then there were also hier hierarchies, pecking orders, budgets, <coughs> clocks that were ticking, and, and very firm sort of lines in the sand of, of that which one could do and couldn't do within any of those sort of allotted quotas. And so much so that you think, well, it, it would be next to impossible for that kind of magic to happen for for a design that would that would last and a relationship that would last sixty years to come into being. But but yet it did. You think we can over romanticise this as fans, or in this instance, it really isn't just hype. This was a kind a kind of magic. The people that were putting Doctor Who together at that point in 1963 did not know what they were creating. They certainly had no idea, uh, and it would have been furthest from their thoughts that they would be, we would be sitting here 60 years later talking about them doing that in those dusty, smoky old offices. Because um, it wouldn't be fair to it wouldn't be fair to to paint them out as simply like civil servants, would it? No. It, it wouldn't, but the, but the fact remains that they were just, they were doing a job. They were just there. They were being paid to get this programme on air. That's all they were doing. They didn't think they were doing anything big or clever. They just knew they've got to get a show on air for a certain date because they'd been told to do so by their bosses. Um, and so whilst there's no doubt that this is lightning in a bottle, um, the, the definition was virtually created for Doctor Who of lightning in a bottle. Yeah. They were they didn't realise they were doing it at the time, did they, Tony? No, no. As you say, they were uh, all employed by the Beam, jobbing directors, jobbing designers, jobbing floor managers, jobbing cameramen, jobbing sound engineers, uh, scene shifters, the people that painted the floor, the people that took the set apart at the end of the day's recording and trundled it into the goods lift 
yeah, all employees just do the night. Well, I was going to say a nine till five job is more of a nine in the morning till ten at night job. Yeah. But, uh, by the and time I imagine I can finished. picture them doing that as well. The picture that you paint there, there Tony, yeah. I can imagine them in those sort of brown jackets going right from the Colossera down to yeah. probably probably to below the knee, come to think of it. We've all seen them, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely true. You do, you get these little brown fellas uh, in in brown Macintoshes. You see them on these skit shows, but that's exactly the type of thing. Oh, the, the scene shifters were there in their overalls. Um, I get the impression, Tony, though that that neither was a responsibility to to doing the best job that they could with those public funds. There's a lot of. Uh, won't say nonsense. A lot of misunderstanding about the origins of Doctor Who, I think, from what I can see, having looked at the paperwork that's been made available down the years. And mm -hmm. if you look on the Hooniverse website, mm -hmm. the iPlayer website, as of the 1st of November, they've released a whole lot more documents. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, which shows the gestation of Doctor Who. What are the point? that has entered into mythos is that nobody in the BBC wanted Doctor Who, that nobody liked Doctor Who, nobody knew what to do with Doctor Who. And it's perfectly true that Doctor Who was initially booked for a run of four weeks. It was just the tribe of gum. Mm -hmm. uh, the, believe it or not, the success of the pilot episode, even though everybody regards it now as a complete failure, was enough to prompt Donald Bavistock, the then controller of BBC television, BBC television, uh, BBC One, as he became to be known. Um, the success of the pilot show in his eyes actually meant that he extended the contract from the initial four weeks to a 13 week run. The controller of BBC One wanted to do it. Sidney Newman wanted to do it. Um, I mentioned the fact that the pilot show wasn't regarded as a success. You get technical failures like the doors of the TARDIS jamming open and uh, cameras seeing the studio lights and the no smoking signs in the ceiling, that kind of thing. Um, I would imagine that things like that were probably more common in pilots than than uh, we'd, we'd believe because mm -hmm. obviously most pilot episodes don't get watched by feverish feverish fans on digital media 50 60 a lot of them never see the light of day at all don't yeah. they so there's probably just as many things went wrong on other pilots but this this is the point about the pilot show most people think that the pilot show would have been transmitted had the technical issues not occurred oh right so as part of that initial yeah. four week run yeah yeah it wasn't it was funded as a pilot with no intention of it ever being shown. Okay. So had, the pilot not be, had they not liked the pilots, they might never even have actually made the first four episodes at all. I yes, yeah. okay. it, it was done for internal consumption, primarily. Okay. Had it been a success, technically, they could have shown it and saved themselves the two and a half grand that yeah. spent. Because now that, that is commonplace, isn't it? Particularly in American television, they make pilots, some get picked up and some don't. And when, when it goes to a full series, sometimes they get remade and sometimes they don't. I, I, I'm curious though, Tony, about where the design department would have would have come into this and how design staff would have been allocated because obviously they didn't have a science fiction department. So yeah, they'd have had people, I would imagine, a department full of, full of people all with a certain skill requirement to be a designer. But obviously the BBC was making period dramas, they were making kitchen sink dramas, they were making sitcoms and children's shows. So 
if they got on staff designers, how would they allocate who was going to be working on which show? Would they would they know their strengths and weaknesses or would it simply be who was back from holiday? Have you got that block of time there? We need somebody who can do five days on project A. You go and do that and see what you come up with. How close to the mark is that? My understanding is that um, Verity Lambert wanted a dedicated designer from the very beginning. Um, she was originally given Peter Brahashki, uh, who unfortunately fell ill after the pilot uh, episode had been recorded, so he couldn't continue in his duties. That role then passed to Barry Newbury, and the sheer amount of workload uh, that he was facing as the series was confirmed beyond the 13 weeks initial run meant that Raymond Cussick was brought on board so that Barry Newbury and Raymond Cussick alternated yeah. Uh, in design duties so those two people were allocated to Doctor Who uh, Verity Lambert apparently wasn't particularly happy with Peter Brash Peter Brahashki's work in the first place and requested a change of designer but that was only a request it wasn't something that she could ever have insisted on because mm -hmm. these people were all BBC employees That's what I so the head of scenic services would say, oh yeah, Barry Newbury, for argument's sake, he's interested in Italian architecture from the Renaissance, so we might like to give him an historical series to do. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there is the element of designers having strengths, which people would obviously be aware of, but the fact of the matter is, it's whoever, uh, whoever was available to do the work. So if Peter had finished working, I don't know, on an episode of Z Cars uh, prior to starting on Dot 2, he'd be then asked by the head of department, right, you've finished on Z Cars, now go and start on Dot 2 Who falls. The designers didn't get a choice, neither did the producers, really. Tony, do we know, because there's always been this sort of being shrouded in mystery, you just mentioned there that Verity Lambert was, was unhappy with Peter's initial design work, and there's always been this sort of mystery about about the initial design of the console room mm -hmm. as in was it that peter's heart and soul weren't in it and he quickly just literally knocked off this sort of hexagonal vague hexagonal roundels design off on, on the back of a packet of fags or is it that <laughs> verity verity wasn't sort of happy with the design that he, he was very proud of it and he, he poured his heart and soul into it and verity wasn't happy and maybe it's that she didn't like this sort of round all hexagonal design that he come up with do, do we know anything at all about the truth of all of this sort of myth um peter Berhashki was a sculpture a sculptor by trade um he uh, moved from poland at the end of the second world war settled briefly um in a, a, a refugee camp just outside of liverpool while he got his british citizenship uh he was very much into his 1950s repeated geometrical designs so if you look at something 
uh, from anywhere from the 1950s, you've got your, your plastics, you've got your falmicas, you've got... Yes, now, now you've said it, I can absolutely see what you're saying, looking at those roundels that, and, and, that are on screen at the moment on that initial design. You're right, I'd never clocked it before, but it is, it's a 1950s design. I'd never yeah. seen mm. that before. It's a repeated geometry. I mean, yeah. it takes its inspiration from nature. You've got a, a, a bee honeycomb wall yeah. for the TARDIS, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. Uh, so it's that that is very much the kind of thing that was going on in the 1950s. Yeah, you're right. Plastic is fantastic. You know, everybody had plastic chairs <laughs> or mica covered tables. Uh, so, so do we think? So do we think that he was he was proud of his design? Do you, I, do you think? I, I can absolutely state that without fear of contradiction. That design is designed to fit one way round in Studio D Line Grove. Uh, Studio D Line Grove was a strange shaped um, studio I had little bits taken out for production galleries yeah. bits taken out for fuse boxes and so on the reason there's a dog leg in the TARDIS walls is to fit around the electrical junction box in yes. the space side of Studio <laughs> D the man knew exactly what he was doing he, the reason uh, I think that Verity Lambert requested a change a was because uh he'd fallen ill uh he was right. he was a very unwell man by this stage in his life uh suffered because of the uh privations that he experienced in the second world war yeah so he had repeated uh bouts of hospitalization due to stomach ulcers and he was actually uh in his later life suffering from cancer as well so he wasn't a particularly well man He'd been allocated late to uh, Doctor Who. You think that it maybe is a myth that it was a rush job because his heart wasn't in it and he was just throwing something together because he couldn't be bothered? You no, think it was I, maybe I, more I, that it was a last-minute thing? I just do not believe that at all. The detail is just incredible there. I mean... Painstaking. Yeah, it, it, annotated. It's all annotated. It tells you which, what metal to use, what colour perspex to use. That's one of his yes. instructions. Make it look like plastic. Right. So he's a product of his time. He knew exactly what he wanted. He overshot on the budget by a gigantic amount, a frightening amount. Was that down to <laughs> ambition and enthusiasm for the project, Tony? Or, yeah. or simply not being, or I hate to say this, not being particularly good at his job and not particularly realistic and needed to be reining in? Which, what was it? Well, in his later life, he was nominated for a Bachelor Award for his design work uh, on When the Boat Comes In. That was towards the end of his BBC career. Uh, by which stage he was a senior designer within the BBC, alongside Ray Cusick, who was also a senior designer within the BBC. You don't get promoted to be a senior designer if you're if you're surly and you're sulky and you mm -hmm. don't know what you're doing. You 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 know eventually you get the boot or you resign and find yourself another job, don't you? I wonder whether, as I say, maybe maybe Verity didn't think much of his design. I don't know. Do you think that's possible? It may be more that he was a very shy man, quite withdrawn man. Um, uh, the, there are numerous uh, reports of him being difficult to get on with, not because he was nasty, right. but because he was, in essence, a shy bloke.
Uh, I mean, again, it'll be interesting to, to sort of go back to the initial documents. And again, I don't know whether whether this has become sort of apparent, uh, Tony, as to is there any sort of description of the interior of the uh, of the, the spaceship well, in those initial scripts at all? Do, was 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 Peter given any guidance by either of the writers of the scripts or the writers of the document, you know, the pre-production documents, the briefings and the synopses and so on? He, he, well, the way it would have worked is that um, the basic concept of the show would have been worked out by people like uh, C.E. Weber, yeah. uh, Sidney Newman, uh, beforehand. Uh, yes. they, they'd actually got the concept of the show bolted down before even Verity Lambert was brought on board. Uh, so they knew they wanted a time traveller, they knew they wanted the earthly companions as the audience his way into the show yeah uh, the doctor was defined as being um grouchy but with uh, a twinkle in his eye mm -hmm. so they knew what they were after uh, in general terms but in terms of specifics they because uh Rahashki wasn't appointed as the show's designer until such a late day in preparations they had precious little time to exchange the, their uh, views with him in fact the first meeting he had with them lasted apparently half an hour and he ended up uh, saying well i've got to go now chaps because i've got two weeks worth of work to do on on this project before i can even start with you yeah. mm -hmm. so it wasn't until sort of three weeks before they was due to start um designing and building the set that uh, Peter actually became involved, and I suppose wow. why would why would he think so extensively about a project that was weeks away when he's got something yeah. that he's doing in twenty four, forty eight, seventy two yeah. hours? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one of the uh, documents that came to light at the beginning of November on the iPlayer uh, says that uh, each episode of Doctor Who is given seven, the equivalent of seven days of designer time, and five hundred hours to build the designs right. every episode that's in the uh, financial documentation that's come out <laughs> so it's fairly standard practice just to give your designer a week's notice to right there you go we want a spaceship please top off uh, peter come back with the designs it's not changed at all it, simon's worked in the tv industry yeah. he'll tell you how long things yeah. take to decide and once they've decided all hell breaks loose and all of a sudden 10 days later you're in the middle of Dartmoor and you're is filming Absolutely. an episode of whatever. But this is but this is why to an extent we again we sort of have to take a step back from that design of the console room and look at it and realise actually the genius of it because they could so easily and, and when you think about it now making making um, what at that point as you say Tony was a pilot episode and nothing more than a pilot on, on next to nothing in a studio that was very basic, they could so easily have just said, you know, all we need is let's just have some black drapes. We'll have a couple of yeah. couple of computer consoles, some yeah. wires hanging down, something that might have looked a bit more similar to what they did ultimately in the Peter Cushing movie. Yeah. Yeah. They could have just that would have been so so easy to yeah. do, and I and I can't help thinking that is the kind of thing that they would have done logically. So something made them think, no, we're going to be a bit more, we're going to put more, put more effort into this. We don't want just black do Well, Do you think white. that it partly as well is because that this set 
very seldom once the adventure which and adventures of doctor who back then would typically last between four and eight ish weeks six mm-hmm. to eight weeks yeah they'd and once the adventure was up and running they'd very seldom go back to the interior of the tardis would they so yes. obviously they wouldn't leave this set up for two no. months they were making marco yeah. polo they wouldn't have that in one corner of that studio would they It'd be, no. it would be taken down and then put back up six or seven weeks later would that be how it would mm-hmm. so yeah, perhaps that's they exactly right. that's exactly right that's there's, there weren't such things as standing sets back then mm-hmm. um nowadays uh well the modern tardis set it'll be built on a welded metal frame the metal frame will be bolted to the studio floor and the only intents and purposes it'll be there for three years or however long uh shooting that was stays in the road or before they decide to redecorate because, the TARDIS because that's why that's why tony isn't it that that's why the tardis console room changes so many times because it had well firstly they started didn't they 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 quite quickly started to trim it down a bit for example the canopy that you're talking about yeah. that went very early on because it was just a pain in the backside to put up there and then of course they would have been dictated to by how many other sets were in the studio for that particular episode that shoot so there might only be left with a small corner for the TARDIS this week for the console room this week and so all we can manage is a couple of flats we can't yeah. we can't have the fourth locator in this week we can't have all these <laughs> yeah. of, 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 of computer consoles there well but bear in mind that the full-size TARDIS set was um just short of 50 feet long by just over 36 feet wide it's, it's pushing 3,000 square feet mm. um, if you add in the bedrooms and all like the little bits of corridors that you get to see in the uh, edge of destruction brink of disaster mm. where that's yeah. the only time you ever see the full set and it, it, it is vast it filled a third of the studio mm-hmm. And, and you know that, that that is not a small set at all. No, and they didn't even make all of the round door walls. They they just took a photo and blew them up, didn't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, as ostensibly, it's supposed to be a uh, a pill packet. Yes, but I actually think it's the mesh that you get on the drum on the inside of a washing machine. Would they would they have had it back in those days in the sixties? Would the drum on the inside of a washing machine have looked the same? Probably would, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think that's I think that's I, what photographed. I can't prove that, but that's well, what I do. You know what, Tony? I think I think you're more likely to be correct on that. I've never gone with the pill packet theory for the simple fact that I don't think they had blister packs like that in the sixties. Uh, they did. Actually. Did they? Yeah. Vacu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry for eighteen years, and they had little display cabinets going back to the nineteen fifties. Really? Wow! Did not know that? They've always had well since plastic was invented, and they still use they still use blow up blow ups for walls now to this day, don't they? So again, yeah. Yeah. these are uh, tricks of the trade, I suppose. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If these uh-huh. things still work on screen now, even in the digital age, why would you do anything any differently? If you could, it's the magic of TV making and film, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. tricks of the trade haven't tra- haven't changed a bit. It's all that's happened is they've got better cameras and better lighting equipment. But actually, again, going back to, for example, those early episodes, the Daleks is a great example because we see a fair bit of the interior of the uh, console room in the Daleks. And certainly, as you said, the edge of destruction uh, and the brink of disaster, you obviously see nothing but the interior of the Daleks. Yeah. And, and for all of the, the, the um, 
the, the, the basic quality of, of those cameras at the time, the, the outdatedness of them, it, it translates remarkably well to screen. Um, and, and what I'm always struck by is it's a very elegant design. It's a very simple, but a very elegant, well-proportioned design. Again, you go to, you look at the console, that six-sided console, uh, and it's just a beautiful, elegant, simple design, but it works so well. And again, I mean, I, I, I remember, I can't, I'd be interested to know who came up with this idea, because I know that the original idea for the console was that it was meant to be operated by a couple of people, wasn't it? That's why it was designed around this central idea of a central console. But I wonder whether it was Peter that came up with with the sort of hexagon, with the with the, with that pedestal kind of start, and the time rotor in the middle, which obviously wasn't called a time rotor at the time. Um, it was just that central glass column. You know, I'd, I'd love to go back and find out who came up with these designs because they're just beautiful, so elegant. That's that's Mr. Berhashki. That's purely his work. Or you know, how much of it was from his brain? And we'll never know the answer to this. How much was from his brain? How much was from the brain of people like Anthony Coburn, who wrote the first four episodes? You know, Sidney Newman, C. E. Weber. Who came up with this stuff? It's in a, to a large extent, it's lost to the mists of time, isn't it? The actual finer details. I think I think you're perfectly correct. You're never going to get to the bottom of, of anything like that because private conversations, telephone conversations weren't recorded in those days. Uh, all you've got to go on is the actual official documentation, which frankly, in most cases, is, is as dull as ditch water. Yeah. You know, it's talking about finance, <laughs> uh, talking about scheduling dates, talking about, um, eh, it's not going to be ready, it's going to have a knock-on effect on all our production going down for the rest of the financial year. Uh, this kind of thing. It, mm -hmm. We've got oodles of evidence on that but we've only got anecdotal evidence on what uh, people thought of each other and what conversations took place behind closed doors um i will actually say that you're wrong about one thing simon mm -hmm. Please that, correct con me. that console was designed to be operated by one person only is that what it was it originally was supposed to have handles on each of the six corners and it was originally supposed to spin round. So if oh. you can imagine the, the doctor spinning the console round wow. so yeah. it could operate. Oh, I see. To do when you, when you said well, when you said operated by one or two people, I thought you meant perhaps there was one guy sat in the base of the console oh, no. pushing the time rotor <laughs> up and down with an air pump. Somebody else sort of flicking the switches on but you actually mean by the actor yeah operated by a single what we now know to be a time lord uh, right, so okay. russell t davis when he says it's got six sides it needs six operators uh -uh, he's wrong right he, okay that's well, okay well i've learned something today uh, if you actually look on the earliest photographs of the console you can see that it stood on a little circular platform. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, had, I did see that. railway track. That's a little railway track for it to spin round on. But they obviously abandoned it before. They abandoned that idea, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing that it just was one, again, one technicality too far. Yeah, why, why, you, wouldn't, you don't need it just to get yourself to land in an adventure and to depart from an adventure here. By a kind of accident, I suppose, this wouldn't have been what they were thinking by any stretch of the imagination. 
but the idea that the doctor if he'd been doing it all himself and spinning that console around because i love that idea as, as, a, as a designer myself as a creative myself you think of course he of course he would it make perfect sense so i like that but from a viewer's point of view and somebody who's grown up loving this show and the dynamic between the regular characters that warmth of the doctor stood on one side and saying oh, i can't quite reach that one vicky can you just flick that yeah. switch for me can you open the doors if he'd have been able to spin the tardis round the console round then that wouldn't have been possible and that familiar sort of family feel to it of it being a cooperative and of trust as well you know yeah. Yeah, this is my spacecraft but i you know you can push that button you can right. you can pull that lever yeah. you can read that screen you know that wouldn't be there would it yeah yeah uh, yeah on balance it's probably a mistake to try and make it rotate if for no other reason as you say dramatic purposes uh, as well as the technical issues that you get unhitching airlines and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I take your point on board wholly on that, Dan. I think you're quite right. It would have spoiled the illusion. I'd love to see sort of later Time Lords in later models, maybe, Sarah, you know, if, uh, if they were chasing the Doctor down. There was a fugitive Time Lord, isn't it, the, at the start? If yeah. people, if other Time Lords were looking for him, maybe they were in sort of uh, slicker, slicker models, like Type 80s, that could <laughs> that. That'd be yeah, really it'd be cool. like the, the equivalent of the Type fighters, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. That, that, um, I'm trying to think, when, when is it said that the Doctor borrowed the TARDIS can you remember when? Yeah, when is first. that first mentioned? Yeah, when is that first mentioned that he's Oops. borrowed the TARDIS? I'm trying to think what go, thinking back to an unearthly child. When? He, what? What do they say? They just say they're fugitives, don't they? They're fugitives. Yeah, they just say like, uh, I come from a different world in a different time, don't they? Yeah, um, yeah. I so would imagine you're getting up towards uh, war games with Patrick. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. You get that so. idea coming in. Because that's when that's when they sort of start to talk about the fact that it was kind of a, a defunct TARDIS, don't they? It was yeah, it was one yeah. for repairs. It was an old model yeah. that yeah. nobody wanted. That's when that sort of thought starts to come. And there's yeah. a romance to that in itself yes. as well, isn't yeah. it? It's very very British. This isn't the USS Enterprise, which is sort of like the flagship of the fleet. Oh, this God. is this is defunct. You know, they've they've pensioned this thing off. You know, it's. Yeah. It's last year's model. That, that's also, a very British sensibility. But what's also interesting, of course, in those early episodes, the implication is that the Doctor has made the, the TARDIS himself, mm. and, and that there's all that business about Susan coming up with the name, you know. So there's mm. that feeling very much, isn't there, Tony? That, 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 that he's stopped that maintained it over a long period of time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the mythology of Doctor Who can't be described as being consistent, can it? No. Looking at, looking at the TARDIS itself, away from the console room we sometimes now and again we do see the bedrooms for example in the TARDIS don't we or the food machine yeah. a, a sort of recreational areas was that something that they originally conceived of that Peter Peter Brahatchke or Barry Newbury or Verity Lambert or anybody in the process would have said it's got to have this he's got to have that or would that have been suggestions from each individual writer who just writing their little story and they put in a bit about you know oh and you know before Barbara goes to sleep or Barbara needs to go for a nap she may say this and so extra sets were created were, were magicked into existence by the department when the script decided or was it always intended that there be other rooms other component parts to it um initially it, when the pilot episode was made so the initial design it didn't have any ancillary rooms all you got was the control room and the police box and the extra set of 
police box doors to give the illusion of Barbara bursting directly into the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did the remount, they, <laughs> they, they, they spent more money on this dratted set and built a pair of doors that looked like it was leading off to the bedrooms. Mm-hmm. But because Doctor Who had only been commissioned to run for 13 weeks, even though the pilot was deemed a success, they had to try to recoup the cost of the TARDIS set over that period. Uh, They'd spent £4,253 on this set, which would have bought you a four-bedroom semi-detached house in that Good Lord. That is a vast amount of so that in itself shows you the statement of faith that yeah. the BBC mm-hmm. were prepared to put into Doctor Who. Um, all right, they bought at the uh, the final bill for the TARDIS set, and it nearly got the show cancelled. But that really? is a the commitment that they put in. They invested the equivalent of a four bedroom semi detached wow. house on that one set to get the money's worth out of that set. They had to use it in the first 13 weeks so mm-hmm. you get as you said simon half of the initial episode is entirely set within the tardis yeah. you then get two episodes the edge of destruction brink of disaster which was meant to close the initial 13 week run and that they purposely built the bedrooms for that story mm-hmm. but it all comes out of this same 4253 quid pot <laughs> Um, so whether it was never intended that the TARDIS had bedrooms in the first story because as you said Dan these things are strip a script which is back in again script driven mm-hmm. uh, but the point is they knew that they had to have at least two full episodes set in the TARDIS to try and justify the cost of that set mm-hmm. So think- a small amount extra to bed to build some four fold down beds was a, a minor expense. Do you think, Tony, there was sort of any consideration given to what today we sort of know as modular sets, i.e. sets with flats that can be rearranged, that can be changed, mm-hmm. that the configuration can be altered to fit that, you know, do you think there was consideration given to that? Because they weren't certain at that point quite how often they'd use the ship and, 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 and by how much. You are exactly right on that mm-hmm. point, Sam. And as Dan said earlier, uh, for something like Marco Polo, you just get one wall of the TARDIS and maybe the console. Yeah. Uh, because the rest of it would be taken up. The rest of the studio space would be taken up by Kubli Khan's throne room or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. The set was designed to be deliberately modular. You would very, very, very rarely see it in its fully assembled form. Mm-hmm. In fact, like I say, it's just edge destruction where you It would just need to be enough yeah. component parts enough in any to orientation to evoke yeah. that sense of being in that environment, yes. whether to, to top or tail yeah. an adventure. To top or tail. And again, in that respect, it, it was actually something of a genius design yeah. on Peter's part because Incredible. it can do that. It, it, yeah. it, it, yeah. it still looks like, you know, you forget the fact that it, it could have just been a black set with black drapes and some wires that could very easily be done. What he's actually done is he's gone one step beyond that and he's designed a, a really good, interesting, visually, aesthetically pleasing 
arresting design, but that is also very, very practical for the requirements of the studio. No, hearing hearing none of this, Simon, is in any way taking anything away from my enjoyment or appreciation of this. In fact, no, in fact, it's making me marvel more because it it's so forward-thinking. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Begin to appreciate it more what they actually mm-hmm. did. Yeah, because um, we have we, we you do get complacent to it. Well, if you think about um, say something like Coronation Street, which has been going more or less the same amount of time as Doctor Who, um, even those even those those sets weren't themselves standing sets. Mm-hmm. They were always assembled in the same way. Yeah. So the bar in the Rover's Return was always in the left hand corner. I don't watch the programme, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But you you get the idea the pub always has to look. Yes. Can't suddenly have a door appear in the middle of, no. a, of a wall no, that no. wasn't there previously. But the magic of Doctor Who, you can. Yeah. Um, it, Bill Hartnell was actually given a line in the early days that the TARDIS had soft architecture. Brilliant. Justify why people were starting to know mm. it yeah. was assembled a different way each week. You know, was that standard practice? Do you think an episode of Dixon of Doc Green, for example, if one one week more of the episode was taking place in the courtroom, and they so they needed to make it maybe a standing set with a with a court, did they just construct that week one part of the front desk of Doc Green Nick? You know, you know was that standard practice within making television then, or was it that that Peter and the team working on this show really really were thinking ahead and thinking outside the box to make this show? feasible not just to get up and running but to stay running to mm-hmm. to this format that had been arrived upon this sort of anthology serial thing that could potentially run and run for sort of three quarters of the year uh taking your example of dixon and doc green it's exactly the same thing as the point i was trying to make with cory uh you wouldn't suddenly have a, a door appear behind the sergeant's desk that hadn't been there the previous week so mm-hmm. that type of set would always be assembled the same way. Okay, you might not get the prison cells shown in a given episode, but when the prison cells are required for a given episode, mm. they would be assembled in the same way they'd been gotcha. when they were Whereas the TARDIS was different mm. literally every week, every single time it appears on screen. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's different <laughs> in some yeah. way, pretty much yeah. every week. Yeah, and that is down to the practicalities of how much is, is actually set within the TARDIS in a given story. And I say that's why it is clever to think that they did it in such a way that it was able to be adjusted to that yeah. extent, to a major extent, um, yeah. because they never quite knew how many sets they were going to have on, in any given week and, and thus how much room they'd have for the TARDIS. Uh, talking about making enough time and space, time for us to parade all those other podcasts before your very ears and eyes right now. Kev's going to fill you in on it all. And then you can meet Simon, Sarah, Tony and myself back here in a couple of minutes for more talk about the Doctor's time space capsule, the TARDIS, on its 60th birthday. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our fandom flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. 
Hair Metal Podcast. We cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show, our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalised you there, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40, if you head over to tpublic.com. Search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and that's where you'll find a store full of all the team colours for all of the podcasts on everything from T-shirts to phone cases, up to enormous tapestries. Seeing is believing. Treat yourself. Treat your other selves. All goes to support the Fandom Podcast Network into the bargain. So everybody wins we're crossing time streams here and and bumping police boxes together to create magic for the tardis's own 60th anniversary here on type 40 so i've got simon sarah and our guest tony farrell here to dig a little deeper into his experiences as probably the police box tardis expert certainly in my experience tony i've never heard knowledge on this sort of depth before that's very kind i'm sure there are other people that know probably just yeah, you're, as too I do. Yeah. You're, you're too modest my friend uh, yes so to bring it up to up to date a little to more recent years in 2017 the tv series was closing out the the tenure wasn't it of the 12th doctor peter capaldi and that entire production team as led by stephen moffat so moffat had been there for seven eight years something like that but for the christmas special that year he conceived of a story that would once again bring the doctor face to face with one of his previous incarnations in this instance it was the, the very first which did necessitate within that script yet again we're talking about the necessities of a script driving a show but this script necessitated the the use of the original TARDIS too didn't it? the original TARDIS console room but obviously they had to remake it and reconceive it based on those original principles but make it fit for viewing and for working with in the HD generation. What I want to know, Tony, is where and how did you come into it? Right, okay. Like you, Dan, we're both members of uh, a couple of Facebook groups, aren't we? And there are uh, things that focus on TARDIS building, the TARDIS Builders website, where people like us, nerds and geeks and... Speak for yourself. Really <laughs> obsessed with, with minor little television programs that have somehow managed to yes. last 60 years uh, go to hang out with our friends 
I joined uh, a group called the TARDIS Builders in about 2010. And it's, it's like all other internet groups, it's made up of uh, people from different backgrounds, different ages, different skill sets, different interests, but they're all brought together basically by a love of the TARDIS. So you might get young kids who do what Simon did, make a, a TARDIS out of a, a PG uh, tips tea bag <laughs> box. But equally, that site attracts industry professionals. And when I joined it, nobody had actually come up with any what I would consider accurate plans for either for the police box exterior or for the control room interior. Uh, so over the course of about three years leading up to the show's 50th anniversary, I started looking at um, these designs and working out what the thing was made out of, how big mm -hmm. it was, what its dimensions were, to try and build an accurate picture. Just um, A, for my own interest, but as a resource for other people so that they could come and yeah. ask me and build, mm -hmm. and build replica consoles, you know, like people build replica Daleks. There are people out there that build replica TARDISes. Um, there's a guy called uh, Ben May, I think. His replica police box is currently on display in Riverside Studios. Uh, he built that box according to my plans. Mm -hmm. wow. So, wow. so I, I know that that's an accurate representation of the first police box exterior, he says modestly. Uh, <laughs> people who are far more skilled at computers uh, than I am could see what I was trying to do in the TARDIS Builders Guild, um, that I wanted to build truly accurate plans. And a couple of lads on there, uh, one called Barry Ward and one called Slava Talanoff, who comes from St. Petersburg, uh, said, well, if you give us the plans, Tony, we'll build CGI models for you. And what we could then do with these CGI models is overlay them onto either video screen captures of the TARDIS or a particular element of the TARDIS uh, or onto photographs of the TARDIS. So what they do is I give them what I thought were the dimensions. They build a wireframe and overlay it on top of the photograph. If it matched, I knew my dimensions were accurate. If it didn't match, I'd toddle off and tweak the dimensions, come back, repeat the process hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times using hundreds of photographs and hundreds of screen grabs and eventually between us we came up with a set of plans that matched every photograph that we could conceivably lay these cgi wireframes onto so i knew at the end of the day that my plans for the tardis exterior and the tardis interior are accurate to what was built in 1963. so if i say that, that panel is 11 and a half inches wide by 15 and a quarter inches tall. You can bet your bottom dollar that's exactly what the size of those panels are. There are numerous, numerous examples, and we've not just done it once, we've done it hundreds upon hundreds of times. And eventually, no matter what angle the police box is photographed from, you can put the wireframe over it and it will match. And that way, you know that the dimensions I've stated in my plans are accurate. So it's teamwork. Um, Rob, yeah. uh, as I said, Barry Ward and Slava Talanoff, talented, really talented blogs. I couldn't have done that without them. 
and without them making those wireframes, I'd have had no chance of matching the plans to the photos. So, as of interest, Tony, was there no were there no initial plans that that, that existed? Yes, there were, but I, I, I was never happy that they were accurate. You know? well, a fellow member of Tardis Builders Guild was a chap called Matt Sanders. Uh, his interest was in the Metropolitan Police boxes that physically existed mm -hmm. in the 1950s, 60s, before they were all demolished. And he's actually built himself a full-sized replica of the <laughs> Metropolitan Police box out of fiberglass. And he toddled off to Crick up in Derbyshire and took mm -hmm. measurements from one of yeah. the surviving police boxes. Yeah, I know um, it well. Yeah. Now, in 2017, it was obvious by photographs that had appeared in the press that the original Cybermen were returning to Doctor Who for Peter Capaldi's closing season. And Matt Sanders, being a member of the TARDIS Builders Guild, initially asked me for help with the um, set for the Polar Base, the South Polar Base. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the little prison cell that William Hartnell finds himself in inside the Cybermen spaceship. Now, I've got the set plans for those. Uh, I beg your pardon. I've got the studio floor plans for those, which give you the dimensions, the lengths mm. and breadths of the individual sets, but not the heights. So it's just literally a bird's eye view of the studio floor and somebody's drawn the outline of the set on mm -hmm. where the benches are, where the computer banks are, this kind of thing. So you can work out the dimensions, the flat dimensions, the footprint of the set. But what Matt was struggling with was to reproduce the height of the set. So I was able to sell him, well, hang on, you know certain things are standard, don't you? That set contains a couple of ladders. The distance between the rooms on a ladder... They're always the same. Always yeah. the same. So if you know how many rooms there are on a ladder, you know the distance between the rungs of the ladder. That ladder's at <laughs> the back of the set, going up a wall. You know how hard that wall is. So it's quite simple. Uh, that's all I do. That's literally all I do. I take a known dimension, or something that I think is a known dimension, compare it to what I'm trying to work out the dimensions of, uh, stick it through uh, Barry Ward's computer to create a wireframe model, and Bob's your uncle. Um, so that's how I got involved. Matt Sanders and I were both members of the same group, and he approached me for help with the cyber, the cyber prison ship, uh, for lots of a better description, and the uh, South Pole control room base. And that led on to work recreating the TARDIS console room? Yeah, he knew, obviously, Matt knew my work recreating the accurate dimensions for the TARDIS as it was first designed. Uh, so as his trust in me grew, he gradually saw the guard came down and it became obvious that we were um, recreating the original TARDIS set. And would I like to help them with that? Could I provide them? Do you mind if I use your plans, Tony? Uh, have you any further information, Tony? And there was like hundreds upon the emails bouncing backwards and forwards. Uh, the day before they started recording, I get an email from Matt and he says, uh, which way around is the console supposed to be? Which panel's supposed to be facing the uh, main doors? Uh, <laughs> so he was going down to sort of, sort of that level. I said, well, it doesn't really matter, Matt, because basically... It varies every week. But it was nice to see a, a, a set that 
even though it's not strictly accurate, it certainly captures the fear of the original set. Definitely captures it. It's yes, a real interpretation. Agree. You handed them all they needed to know? I mean, obviously, the set design is not mine. That's Matt Sanders and Michael Pitworld's design. Um, but they knew that the information that I'd given on which they could base that design was accurate. And it looked beautiful on screen. It made you feel like this was the same place, the same the same TARDIS, the same set. Just this is how it would have looked, I suppose, if we'd have had HD cameras back in 1963. These are the little details that we couldn't see then, that we could now. And uh, even the elements that were, that were altered, that were rethought, they sit there pretty perfectly. I'm a big fan of what you all achieved on this Tony. It really it really was a beautiful, beautiful touch. And every scene that takes place on that set, I'm looking, I mean, it's terrible. Sorry, Mark, if you're, if you're watching, or David, or Pearl, I am listening honestly to what you're saying, but I'm mostly just sort of looking around, darting my eyes all over this set and every tiny detail of every graphic, Tony. I was like, the day I went down there in uh, 23rd of June 2017, I was down on the set. Uh, like I said, I saw Mark Gates eating his egg noodles for his lunch. I walked through the big bulkhead doors and I was like a kid in a sweet shop. I really was. I mean, I could see, I knew bits weren't accurate, which, as you say, had been updated for the modern eye. But walking under that ceiling canopy and just gazing up at it, I was, you know, I was there. <laughs> I, I was back in 1963. That, and, did you, I, and did you get to speak to people on set? Did, you, did, did they know who you were? Did they know the... Uh, yeah, Matt, Matt had been very kind. Uh, Matt Sanders had been very kind. And uh, in, as we met people going down corridors and bumped into people, he said, oh, this is Tony. He's the guy that's given us the plans for the TARDIS. Uh, so, yeah, um, Rachel Talalay uh, sent me a message after we'd finished saying how how pleased they were with everything, which was nice. Oh, that's wonderful. And you can see that does look very, very large. Yeah. It's big. That's, and that's not even the full-size TARDIS set. Mm -hmm. That shares the um, same footprint as an unearthly child, which the control room was actually about two-thirds two of its full size for that story. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's still big. It's still 30-odd feet long by 30 feet wide. Did you have a favourite little detail where you had to take a second look and think, oh, they've oh they've only gone and done that? Uh, my favourite bit, if you can see the Syrian candlestick. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I, um, there's, there's a picture of me hugging it somewhere. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that's amazing. That's there you go. That I, I just to touch something that was on the set in 1963 was brilliant. Was, hang on, was that the same candlestick that was yeah. on the actual set rather than the recreation? No way. Is that what you're telling me? It's one of, it's one of a pair. Yeah, That's it is. They, they, they managed to get them from the. I think it's from the exact same uh, prop hire company, wasn't it, Tony? Yeah. Trading post. Yeah, it's a company just outside of uh, Wembley Stadium in North London. It's still there today. Incredible.
It's amazing, isn't it? And they were, as Tony says, yeah. right there on that on that initial set on an unearthly child. Yeah. Lovely to see a really good version of the astral man. That, that was that came as a complete surprise to me. I had no idea they were doing that. I didn't provide any plans for that. That's just um, uh, Michael Pickwood and Matt Sanders and the rest of the guys accessorising the TARDIS. Well, that was a treat to see as well. Yeah, uh, the little brass clock was uh, supplied from, um, well, it got to them via Clayton Hickman, but Clayton Hickman again took the plans for the little um, brass clock from the TARDIS builder's site. I think I'm on balance and I preferred it to be green like the original. That was going to be my next question because obviously, <laughs> as we now know, the set wasn't bright white, was it? The, I always believed it was bright white and I only found out a few years ago or put two and two together. I can't remember what it was. Early John Pertwee episodes, you do see the green console, room, console don't you? Yeah. But yeah. on screen, if it looks white in a black and white story, it's not unreasonable for us to assume that it was white. Mm -hmm. But no, no, it wasn't. And the, the studio floor, floor was light blue as well, wasn't it? So all those things. But I, in obviously within the fiction, they seem to commit to the idea, the vision in 2017, that no, that what you saw on screen was how it was, rather than how it was actually within the, within the studio parameters, within right. our world. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you, in 1960s, using the camera technology that they had available then, if you painted something, actually had a set that was white, you, you'd just get a negative flare on your camera, right? The Dalek extermination effect. Just yeah. too much flare for the camera's yeah. electrics to cope with. So that's why you have to go for a, 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 either an off-white or a pale colour uh, mm -hmm. to get rid of that flare. And the metallic hexagon at the at the base as well, which yeah. you, you don't really see unless you're looking for it, Sarah, when you watch those early episodes. You don't know, but it, yeah, it, it's all there, and it, yeah, the, the amount of detail, it's breathtaking. And again, you, you you do have to kind of watch it over and over again. And it is it's it's just lovely to see Roundels, you know, all Doctor Who fans are fans <laughs> Roundels. Best. You know, that console room for me, and we've talked about this many, many times on the show, and that yeah, console room for me remains the best console room, uh, uh, bar none. Uh, 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 to me, it knocks all of the post-2005 console rooms out of the water. I understand why there's fans of those, 100%. I do understand, especially, Sarah, people like yourself who, who came onto Doctor Who with those sort of 2005 uh, and mm -hmm. later console rooms. But for me, you know, as a fan of the of the 70s uh, Doctor Who onwards, this is always and always will be the console room. And I'd just give anything to them to go back to that console room. That's all I need. Do you feel the same, Tony, or do you... Uh, or, original, or, or... original is best. Original is best. There's a strong argument to say that all the component parts, everything you, that you need of to evoke that ship, that environment, are all there. And it doesn't really matter how you want to design it or redesign it for modern times, which sort of fad you want to go with to include, or, or which other movie or TV franchise you think, oh, I like how they did that on that show or film maybe we could incorporate that a hologram or 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 something or or something that looks like touch sensitive any one of these things but everything is actually there and then this show even now even in 2023 and, and onwards into the all new era the show itself would work just as well 
if there was a set just like this, <laughs> yeah. yeah, within reason, within reason. Oh, yeah, I can't argue with that. And you know, like Simon says, I, I mean, I love most of the consoles in the two thousands, but yeah, there is something just so. I know we keep going back to that word, but it is. It's iconic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you, and it's. You know, we wouldn't have these other console rooms had it not been, you know, for the success of this design. This is the blueprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, firstly, it's timeless, and secondly, it truly is a classic design, as, as Tony said earlier on. There's been nothing like it before or since. Um, it just it just broke the mould with this. There's, yeah. there's no two ways about it. It's a beautiful design. I'm in awe of, of yourself, Tony, for your um, dedication. To, re- to to drawing up those plans, to sourcing that information, to getting your head around the practicalities of building something like this in the first place, let alone recreating it now. I'm a I'm a creative, a career creative, whatever you want to call it, and that's that's sort of my skill set. But I am in awe of anybody with the the, the multitude of practical skills that can take ideas, dreams, flights of fancy, and turn them into things that people can walk around, push buttons on, uh, and I suppose dismantle at the end of the day. Things that are, that are practical working props that look as beautiful as this. And uh, to keep it running and to, and to make it function in creating the magic for us that we are going off in, into, into time and space and to make this sort of technology kind of feasible with all its whizzes and pops and, and yeah, anything, even if it's a bit Heath Robinson, I think that's uniquely British, and I think it's very, very Doctor Who. And yeah, I'm, I'm sort of coming around to your way of thinking, Simon, actually, that let's just go back to this, as excited as I am to see what's coming next. I've kind of, I've been won over in the course of this conversation. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps the dial really need, uh, does need to go all Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So much magic happened with Doctor Who, of course, it did back in 1963, 60 years ago this month. And uh, yeah, when the show started to take flight, it would make stars of, of Carol Ann Ford, Jacqueline Hill and William Russell, who I know they'd all done lots of things before, but it, it turned them into into proper stars. And of course, gave William Hartnell, ironically, the, the role of his lifetime, a man who'd had success after success too and birthed the entire series that we're sat here talking about today. And An Earthly Child was obviously screened on the 23rd of November, 1963. And it's been viewed, I've watched this thing dozens dozens and dozens of times. And as you say, Simon, I don't think I'd ever really sat and clocked quite how much of the screen time did take place on that set and what that must have taken how important it was and so for them to have taken the time that they did and for it to go backwards and forwards and in and out of different designers hands yeah i can imagine it was probably a bit of a um a bit of a trial at the time i was gonna say ball like but i didn't a bit of a trial <laughs> a bit of a trial at the time but the end result is a, a concept a design which in all in all reality has lasted for 60 years everything kind of like the frameworks that you were talking about earlier on there tony the framework is sort of still there and any time that any designers that come to the show in the decades afterwards if they move everything out of orientation that bit too much even if there's a central console there it doesn't look like the tardis anymore it doesn't look like the same place anymore there's only so far you can push it and i think that's probably the strength of, of the original designers of, of Barry Newbury, 
Peter Brahatchki, all those all those people. And I suppose the people as well through the remainder of the classic run, Simon. I, I know, I know that you, we can't over romanticise this too much. A lot of the time, the thing was literally just thrown out of store, popped on. The, they, they might have given it a fresh coat of white paint on the floor. It was, that was large. <laughs> that was largely it. And the thing is, as you as you go through the sort of seventies and the eighties, and obviously they did remake the console room on uh, on a number of occasions. And and after a while, it does begin to look very very shabby. If you look close. You can see sort of roundels falling off, or that they're not lit, or whatever it might be. But again, it is down to that elegance of design that it still works, even when it's beginning to look a little bit worn around the edges. It still works, doesn't it, Tony? Somehow oh, yeah. you don't notice it. Well, I, I do, but <laughs> <laughs> you're, looking, you're looking with a picky eye. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's just me. Be, that's just my. Uh, yeah, I can see how you've made that. But you can there. at least look through it. I, I agree with what you guys have just said. You can't stray too far from the original. You just can't. You've got to have a six-sided console with a glass column, and you've got to have round doors, and you've got to have a police box, haven't you? You've definitely got to have roundels. Yeah. As long I mean, as you've got yeah, roundels and the police box, all is right with the world, all is right with the Hooniverse. Uh, yeah, we are about to see a brand new interior of the TARDIS on screen for the first time in a few years, but with the increase in budget and the, the new filming techniques as well, Simon, that we're, we're promised to come in. Well, you can see with the trailers that they're definitely on the way and in place for, for all new Doctor Who going forward. Uh, I can imagine, Tony, you'll be watching just as eagerly as ever with, with an eye for any little thing that they may have not exactly got wrong, but <laughs> for anything, that, any for any dinks or creases that are there in in the old girl, but uh, for sixty years, I think she's I think she's looking pretty good, Sarah. Oh yeah, I agree. She's a she's aging beautiful like a fine wine. That's what she is. <laughs> Excellent, nice way to describe it. That like a fine wine. Yes, just keep it in the bottle. Uh, Doctor Who returns to screen Saturday the twenty fifth of November 2023 at 6.30pm on BBC One uh, with the Starby stars Catherine Tate, David Tennant and the TARDIS, the first of that three-part anniversary event series. And viewers internationally, they can stream it on Disney Plus 2. Look out for more of our anniversary coverage, including reviews of every episode here on Type 40. But that is the old girl starting up and calling time on this edition of Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast. I'll be back with another one soon. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been over at the dedicated home feed for Type 40 at type40.podbean.com or maybe we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, all those places. We're on the Podbean app itself so easily used and we're so easy to find we're also on youtube the world's largest streaming platform here on the type 40 channel with dedicated video editions of every single podcast now along with our sister show type 40 live our weekly magazine format doctor who live stream completely raw completely live where anything can happen anything can be said and often is get all of that over at the type 40 channel 
on YouTube. We're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's own master feed. Of course we are, loaded up with so many other treats for your ears, never mind weekly. They're coming at you on the daily, so please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows for the FPN. Uh, Maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this. You can do that through our social medias, Instagram and X at Type 40 Doctor Who, or you can email us Type 40 Doctor Who at Outlook.com. And if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real-time extra-dimensional banter and chit-chat, step into the Type 40 Facebook group. Classic fans and new fans all hanging out there, and we're all looking forward, looking into the future with all new Doctor Who, the 60th anniversary and beyond. Uh, Sarah, where can people find you on social media at the moment? What are you doing and where are you doing it? Oh, you can find me on... Uh, well, it's not Twitter anymore, is it? It's X, I keep forgetting. That's you can the one. find me at Starry-Eyed Who, just below... Uh, my name there. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, and you can find me on uh, Type 40 on Thursday. Come and chat. How about you, Simon? Yeah, people can come find me on the Hoonatics page on Facebook. That's the only place it exists. I can't be bothered with any of the others. So Facebook is quite enough. Uh, so come and say hello on the Hoonatics page there. And like, <laughs> and like Sarah, find me on the Thursday on Type 40 Live. And you can find me at Instagram and X as the Spacebook, wheezing and groaning, ranting and raving, just like the TARDIS, about all things geeky, inside and outside of the Hooniverse in uh, in TV, comic books and movies and whatever else catches my eye, my imagination or both. Tony, fabulous to have you here in our time-space capsule. You mentioned the Tireless Builders Facebook group there. Is that where people can find you? I, I tend to uh, just stick to Type 40 Facebook group at the moment. Sensible man. Good man. Um, yeah. <laughs> he got taste, really. there, by all means, they can do. I'm absolutely always open to uh, sharing stuff that I've got. I'm not one of these people that believes in hoarding stuff. You know, if, if I've got it, I'll share it. Fair enough. There you go. Fantastic. Fantastic. So well, we hope to bring you back on because I know there's a lot of things, lots of points about the TARDIS's history on screen that you could probably you could probably talk for hours and hours about, couldn't you? I, I, I could probably blow the pants off you. <laughs> never, never. Good man. Thank you very <laughs> much for your company, Tony. And as always, thanks to you for listening. At long last, we've, we've arrived at the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. So yeah, keep Keep following, keep listening for more special celebratory coverage from us here at Type 40 and Type 40 Live. There's going to be a lot to talk about and we'll have the time if you have the space 